Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to Heritage Voices, episode 38. I'm Jessica Uquinto, and I'll be your host today. And today we are talking about Indigenous Australian archaeology. Before we begin, I'd like to honor and acknowledge that the lands I'm recording on today are part of the Nuch, or Ute Peoples, Treaty Lands, the Dineta, and the Ancestral Puebloan Homeland. On today's show, we have Dr. Chris Wilson. Dr. Wilson is a senior lecturer in Indigenous Australian Studies and Archaeology at Flinders University. He's from the Lower Murray Lakes and Coorong in South Australia. Dr. Wilson received a Bachelor's of Archaeology from Flinders University, as well as a professional certificate in Indigenous Research Training and Practice from the University of Melbourne. In 2017, Dr. Wilson was the first Indigenous Australian to be awarded a PhD in archaeology, which he received from Flinders University. In 2010, he served on the Expert and Community Reference Committee for the Department of Indigenous Affairs of the Federal Australian Government, Canberra, for the review of the International Repatriation Advisory Policy. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Okay. So I want to get this started with asking you how you got into archaeology and uh, indigenous studies okay so i guess i first heard about university when i was in high school in i would have been around 13 years old and i didn't know that it was an option back then and it was actually my uncle who came to visit from Flinders university he was working there at the time as a recruitment officer and i mentioned that it's it's possible for indigenous students to apply to university through a program that kind of set I guess the wheels in motion for me in terms of thinking about university. Um, I'd always been, you know, interested in, in culture, in history. I love doing society environment projects and also astronomy and the dinosaurs. So I was always, you know, I had this curious mind and I was, um, you know, always exploring lands around home and um, farmlands and our creeks and our rivers. So I guess I had a, you know, quite a interest at a young age for for exploring, you know, country and exploring culture and history and heritage. So when I heard about university and what the options were, um, my uncle mentioned archaeology and uh, that popped, you know, that immediately was an, an interest for me. So I had chosen archaeology for my tertiary entrance rank uh, and also forensic science because I was interested in human remains and burials and it wasn't necessarily that I wanted to work around human remains. I just was fascinated by by the skeleton and the body. And, yeah, and I knew that there was a lot of burials within our country, um, a lot of Aboriginal burials. So I, I chose forensic science. But 
I guess I ended up going with archaeology for a few reasons. I mean, the first is that it, in terms of being able to travel, attracted me. The second was I could explore my own culture and heritage and identity. And the third one was that it was sounded like a really fun and exciting kind of career to have. So, yeah, I, I did my year 11 and 12, which we call SACE here in South Australia. It's the South Australian Certificate of Education. And I had just gotten the score I needed to get into archaeology. And I was the first in my family to, to go to university um, and to do a bachelor's degree. And as soon as I started, I just knew that archaeology was going to be the career that I was going to follow. I guess I, I was expecting to do classical archaeology as well and travel broadly Australia and the world. But that first year really kind of um, busted that myth for me in terms of, you know, we could exploring Egypt and, and Greece and, you know, be Indiana Jones. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess, I, you know, we, there was so much work in Australia we, and I didn't realise how much more, you know, work there was to do here. And it was, it's just, yeah, it was just amazing and mind-blowing for me. So I, um, you know, made the decision quite early um, with a few other friends who were also Aboriginal. There's only three of us who were Aboriginal who started uh, back in 2000 and was our first year. Yeah, I just knew that I wanted to work with my mob and um, my, my people from there on end and there wasn't anybody in my community doing archaeology um, or that was trained in archaeology. So I was pretty much um, mentored by elders and community members and other academic staff throughout my degree. So I'm quite lucky to have you know, the mentors around both Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal. Um, and, yeah, I've always been kind of a proud Aboriginal Australian I like to acknowledge both my cultural heritage and I think it's important. It's certainly important in this kind of field because it's so political that I kind of, I'm up front with who I am and, um, and my cultural heritage because I'm not just ex- exploring my Aboriginal heritage, um, I'm also exploring my non-Aboriginal heritage and there's quite interesting intersections which I've um, uncovered during my PhD research um, which I'm starting to follow as one of my lines of research and interests. So, yeah. Can you share about that? That sounds really interesting. Yep. So I guess when I was doing my background research for my my PhD, my literature review, and then my archival research, I came across um, some archives in and some newspaper clippings in a journal uh, that was written by uh, Norman Tyndale. And Norman Tyndale is seen as one of the founding fathers for archaeology in Australia. Uh, he worked out of the South Australian Museum uh, in the 20s and 30s and 40s, I think. And, um, yeah, he, he's acknowledged as our, our kind of our forefather for Australian archaeology. A lot of anthropology and um, history and archaeology excavations and surveys across the country. He took a lot of photographs as well of Aboriginal people and collected um, artefacts. So the South Australian Museum actually has one of the largest uh, collections, archaeological collections in the world of Aboriginal artefacts. In in that collection, there's human remains, there's a lot of wooden implements because down in our community or down our region, there was quite a lot of wooden implements as part of the toolkit. A lot of photographs from that colonial period. So he documented quite a lot and spoke to a lot of elders who have now passed. He had a lot of knowledge and were last speakers in our community, uh, also last people who were initiated 
um, in our community. And so in those journals, and there's quite a lot of them, we're called the, the River Murray Journals. And um, in one of them, I have a newspaper clipping of an, my uncle, whose name was Susie Wilson. His name, his name was John, but his nickname was Susie, and that's how he was known. But um, there was, he gave a report in that newspaper article um, at the age of 102, and he spoke about two things. He spoke about uh, hunting kangaroos when he was younger in that day, which was in the 1930s when he was interviewed. Um, there weren't as many younger people hunting kangaroo, and he, he would hunt you know, 20 to 30 kangaroo back in his day, but in the 20s and 30s that was starting to die down. And the second thing was relating to whaling and sealing in that area um, because we live along um, the coastal region um, and we have uh, quite a large island, Kangaroo Island. It's one of the largest islands offshore from um, the Australian mainland, besides Tasmania and a few others. Um, yeah, he spoke about how the whaling industry um, started to impact our culture. Um, and so he spoke about um, one of the accounts of whaling experiences he had with some of the whalers. Um, and one day they got dragged out to sea when they were trying to harpoon a whale and they got dragged kilometres out and it took them a couple of days to swim back. Wow. For me, it kind of, I thought, well, there's quite a lot of knowledge around whaling and about the whales and um, our people didn't traditionally, obviously they didn't traditionally hunt whale. <laughs> I mean, they're, so, they're the biggest mammal um, on earth, but... They certainly had ceremonies around whales. So when the whales would get beached, particularly around the Encounter Bay, lower, um, the Encounter Bay region, um, in Victor Harbour, um, there would be a big ceremony um, for that for that whale. Um, and at that point in time, you know, people would actually, you know, use the whale for for food, for ceremony, for trade. Um, so all all components of that whale, but. I asked a few questions by one of, to one of the elders, Uncle George Tavori, who's now passed, um, about uh, why my uncle was talking about the whale. And he said, oh, that's probably because the whale is one of your Nazis. And a Nazi in our language is totem. And for me, that was quite interesting. You know, I'm starting to reconnect with my culture through the animals and through whales and through whaling industry. So there's this interesting intersection between who I am and my identity and an archaeologist, but also, you know, my kind of heritage and my genealogies as well. Yeah, so the whole whaling thing story, I started to write into my PhD and what that meant for me, you know, as an identity person and starting to rediscover that component of my history. And, yeah, so it looked, I looked back in the genealogies which were held by the South Australian Museum. I mean, Tyndale, again, he, he wrote up these genealogies um, and he also helped to to draw up a map um, of Aboriginal Australia. So you probably might have seen there's a, a map that's done by David Horton. It's a colourful map which shows all the different nations and groups in, in Australia. Um, well, he actually based his work on Norman Tyndale's maps as well. So the genealogies of families, when I looked back at them, it took me back to one of our amicable ancestors, um, her name her name was Fanny, and there wasn't it isn't much recorded about Fanny um, from what I've tried to find, other than she was from Cape Jervis, that she was taken by a whaler called Wilson, 
And again, there's not much information about Wilson, but Wilson took Fanny as a wife and a domestic slave, I guess, or domestic wife, um, over to Kangaroo Island. Um, Kangaroo Island had one of the major whaling stations for, you know, the southeast and that whole southern coastline before South Australia was set up as a colony. So that was back in the 1800s. Yeah, so it's from Wilson the Whaler, who we think is French, um, from that kind of French whaling industry. Uh, but there's other reports, you know, that he's Scottish, that he's um, uh, Finnish. Um, and so I'm trying to find out um, his kind of connections. Yeah, but Wilson and Fanny, they had, um, yeah, I guess children from where I'm descended from. And so that's kind of what I'm trying to explore now is the, the whole history about whaling. And I'm working with um, Dr. Adam Patterson, who's a colleague of mine with the South Australian Maritime Museum, around that whole whaling story. And so we're starting a, well, we want to start an archaeological project around targeting some of the whale science um, and some of the whaling sites that they had along the coast um, and on KI. Um, yeah, for, for future research. So that's one of the kinds of lines of um, research that I'm taking. Um, and I've got some of my family involved in that who are interested in learning about their culture and heritage and young people um, who are doing genealogies um, as well. So, yeah, that's that. Yeah, that's really cool. <laughs> so we're already almost at our first break. <laughs> but I, okay, so there's, before we go to a break, just a couple questions to get you thinking mm -hmm. while we're on break, and then we'll come back and start with these. So, I, I mean, I'd love to hear more about the, the community or family involvement that you mentioned at the end mm -hmm. there. And then um, also what you're looking at specifically archeo archeologically um, in terms of the whaling sites. Um, so if you could talk a little bit more about like Thank how you. this all ties together, uh, that would mm -hmm. be, that would be really interesting. So with that, we will be right back. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high-quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on, and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code HEVO, H-E-V-O. Spread the word. The JCPenney Friends and Family Sale is back. And this week, we're passing the savings on to you. Use your extra 30% off coupon to prep your home and style your family for Easter. That's extra savings on top of our great low prices. Plus, share your coupon with everyone you know and love. It's always better when we save together. JCPenney. Make everybody count. Offer valid 311 through 317. Exclusions apply. See store or jcp.com for details. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba. 
All right, and we are back. Okay, so we were just talking about all the different aspects of your PhD, so the personal family connections and the, your community and family involvement, and then the, the archaeology of the whaling sites itself. Mm -hmm. So you were telling us about the first of those three, and I, I'm really curious to hear more about the, the second two, so the, the family slash community involvement and what exactly you were looking at from an archaeological standpoint. Yeah. Okay. So just in terms of my family involvement in the community, um, so I'm Ngaranjiri. Ngaranjiri are a group from the Lower Murray Lakes in Kurong in South Australia. And um, there's different particular tribes or languages within the Ngaranjiri nation. I guess it's more of recently we kind of we call ourselves or collectively as one, one nation. I, my particular family connects to the Kurong um, area, uh, but also to the southeast, which is down where Kingston is along the Kurong. So a lot of that Kurong area for me is is my connection to country. Um, my pet is in the Lower Murray, and the Lower Murray area is quite important in that that river system because it starts to meander through towards the the southern coastline into uh, Lake Alexandrina, Lake Albert, and then along the Kurong and then out to sea. So, I mean, that whole ecologically, ecologically that whole area is quite significant um, because there's fresh and salt water um, in that region. Um, it's quite abundant in terms of food and resources. We have river red gums, uh, one of the largest fish in Australia, the Murray cod, was the main fish for the river. Um, there are also other types of fish species, smaller fish, um, lots Lots of plants um, and vegetables, and so the, and then you move to the Kurong, and you've got all the saltwater fish, um, and then you've got ducks, and you've got swans, and different birds, and swan eggs, and and swan egging, quite important down that way. So I was using nets for trapping fish and birds, um, and stopping the flight past the birds. The Kurong um, is one of the it's on a it's on a register called Ramsar, and Ramsar is like an international um, place of significance. So it's kind of equivalent to a world heritage kind of area um, in some way. I mean, it's significant because of all the bird life that's there. So it's it's one of the areas that the um, birds migrate from the northern hemisphere to the southern hemisphere, and they do that on a yearly basis. And um, it has one of the most largest range of species of birds that come every year to, down to that area. So, and the Ngarajiri is seen as quite important people for um, for looking after a lot of different types of species of animals, um, particularly birds and swans and, and ducks. We've also got the pelican, which we call nori. And I don't know if, if anyone's seen Storm Boy. Mr. Percival was a pelican. Um, and Storm Boy was a movie which we grew up with, and that was filmed at the Kurong. So, yeah, I guess I'm just trying to paint a picture here of how significant the area is because archaeologically we can see all of that. Um, you know, when we do our excavations, when we're out there on country doing surveys, the whole country has, you know, one of the largest um, recorded areas for, for burial sites. Um, and there was an archaeologist called Colin Pardo um, in the 80s who actually referred to these burials in the Lower Murray area as being like cemeteries. 
And that's important because um, the idea of Aboriginal people being nomads and nomadic and wandering around the landscape and not having any fixed places to burial was kind of busted. You know, that kind of myth was busted by Colin Parter who started to call them, you know, these burials as cemeteries um, because there are markers in the landscape. Um, people did bury families and together in certain ways and there were certain traditions and practices for it. And I guess that gives us an idea about your population size and that if there are quite a lot of resources in the area, you know, archaeologists are starting to see quite a large number of this in the landscape through burials um, and through their analysis of human remains, then we, we know that there's actually quite a lot of top people there living um, and there's a lot of organisation in terms of the social organisation of space, um, the way that people interact, the way that people, um, their cultural practices. So there's, yeah, quite a lot of symbolic and you know, so, social um, organisation that goes with, um, you know, large populations. So the Lower Murray is seen as having one of the largest populations of Aboriginal people at the point, um, at the point of contact um, in Australia. And this is one of the research questions that Australian archaeologists um, investigate. I guess the river system and the Coorong is littered with, well, not littered, but it's scattered with um, shelvings. Um, so shellfish is one of the other primary resources that um, people ate. And there's mussel shells in the river. There's two different types of mussel shells. That was one of the, the sites that I excavated were, were midden sites. Uh, but within those middens, you get... Obviously, bone from, from animals, so snakes, lizard, fish, um, the Murray cod um, ear bone, um, which we call the odolith, is actually quite significant for archaeologists because we can start to um, to determine the species through the odolith. Um, you know, species, even humans, um, have ear bones, um, and each ear bone has a signature in there. Um, and they also grow rings throughout their life. So it's like a tree where it grows tree rings. And... Um, the fish also does that in its life and um, because of the type of uh, material um, that our, that the body produces or that fish produce in terms of it's a carbonate type of material, the ear bone forms, um, it soaks up all the kind of elements in the environment. So we're able to do analysis, chemical analysis, we're able to do, you know, typological analysis. We can try to determine the minimum length of the fish by that and we can do ageing as well. So one of my colleagues, Dr Morgan Despain, um, she did a fish odalisk from the Lower Murray, from my excavations, but also from the Kurong and another fish from there called the Kurong Mullet and a few other different types of species of fish. And she actually found that the Murray Cod odalisk, one of them from my excavations, and was at least 2.2 metres in length. And that's quite important for, you know, Australian archaeologists, but for environmentalists, for, I guess, for understanding, you know, the type of environment that was, you know, before, the type of environment and the ecology that we had before contact. So if we have bigger fish back then, the largest recorded fish since contact is 1.8 metres. So we're talking about, you know, 0.4 metres or 400, yeah, so 0.4 metres at least, then we know that there were quite large fish. Um, and we have stories of the Pondy, which is the Murray Cod, and Pondy travelled down and created the river in our region. You know, Pondy is described as being a, a giant fish. Um, and so, you know, we can, yeah, the stories of our, our from our elders um, kind of correlate with some of the research that we found. And we don't compare it necessarily, but, 
in terms of being able to, you know, find synergies and correlate some of that and try to find standing between, you know, the indigenous or our, you know, cultural worldviews and the archaeological research is um, something in which I try, you know, to, to explore my PhD um, and it's something that a lot of people are starting to, to acknowledge in Australian archaeology and, you know, that kind of deep, the idea of deep time um, is something that people started to look at and explore the, the idea of um, Aboriginal people having agriculture um, or like agriculture um, is something that people are starting to explore. Um, and also, you know, the kinds of navigation techniques that um, Aboriginal people had in terms of being able to sail up and down rivers, um, you know, sail along lakes to, you know, in the northern part of Australia, Australian archaeologists are still trying to find research around how human you know, how our um, ancestors actually moved out of Africa, theory, into Indonesia and then across the sea. Um, so they're still trying to find the evidence for the, 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 sea, the sea craft and the watercraft and then the technology that actually was able to bring populations over and be able to be sustainable across to the Australian continent. So there's quite big questions in Australian archaeology that are still been explored. Archaeologists in the maritime area um, explore that and I've got some colleagues at Flinders University and Dr Jonathan Benjamin who just um, who is leading a project up in in Western Australia um, which is looking at submerged landscapes, looking for the sites and artefacts underwater which they found some interesting results. Um, those results starting to come out I think. But yeah, but you know in the southern area you know there's a lot of burials. Um, we have rock, rock art, rock engravings mainly, and a lot of shelving sites, a lot of scarred trees um, where people have carved out their canoes and their shields um, and to make implements like the boomerang and other types of um, wooden implements. And the boomerang is quite an important implement um, for us as well. And David the Nipon, who is on the $50 note, is accredited to being one of the first Indigenous people to author in English. And he was also an inventor, so he created the blue. Well, he had blueprints and um, you know, had theories and ideas which related to physics and motion, perpetual motion. Um, but he also used you know the kinds of ideas around the boomerang and that technology for you know, ideas around propellers, you know, the helicopter propellers and flight, and also for electric shears, which helped establish you know Australia's kind of. You know, agricultural industry um, early on. So they've been icons on our $50 note, you know, being, um, you know, I guess acknowledged for, you know, his contribution to, I guess, um, Australian culture and just culture and history and and science and engineering. And so he's authored a few books um, in, in English. He, yeah, there was a part of the university he named after him called the David Icon School. Um, look, I'm currently working with a um, media company called Butter Media um, and our National Indigenous Television to, yeah, in regards to a series which they've called The First Inventors. And this is still new in their development. It's the second second season for them. And then I propose that they do, you know, one of the episodes around um, the boomerang because I think it's quite, yeah, quite important. wooden implement. People don't really give it enough credit in terms of, you know, how important it was to make, the kind of skills that go into making wooden implements and the kind of for actually 
using the boomerang and making that you know, come back or even to hunt animals and the different styles and the different types is quite fascinating. Um, and and gives you, I guess, gives us all an understanding about technology and weaponry, um, how important that's been for our modern world. Because a lot of the weapons that we have in the, our modern times are kind of built on Indigenous people's um, knowledge and, you know, their wooden implements. And I'm sure that's the same in North America in terms of knowledge that was there. And, yeah, so this is starting to come out in Australia like in terms of uh, us being able to use science and history for, for education and for curriculum. So working with a few of our education departments in the university around indigenising curriculum, some around archaeology and heritage. Yeah, people are really interested in the science and engineering space and also agriculture and environmental science as well. So, Yeah, so there's like a million things that I want to ask you about all of that. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I'm going to save one of them for after the break, which is about the in- indigenising curriculum. So we'll, we'll yeah. save that one for a moment. Two quicker ones. Forgive my ignorance as a as an American, but you know the the boomerang. It's it's always kind of it. It seems like it's used as like a joke a lot in like um, movies mm-hmm. and TV. It's like always. So I just I'd be curious to get your perspective on that because obviously you're showing a great deal of respect for it, which I mean sounds. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean there's different types of well. The two types of boomerangs that I'm, I guess, are more widely used, um, you know, for, for Aboriginal people, you know, are, are both for, for hunting. Um, obviously, there's a returning boomerang, which is also a hunting one, but there's also a, a, a larger style of boomerang. It doesn't return, but it's for larger mammals and animals, and you get those ones more in the central Australia and um, east coast of Australia. But, yeah, so the, but there's all... There's hundreds of different styles um, of of the boomerang. So the key to the technology, well, the the carving and the and the process of it is something which I'm exploring with the South Australian Museum. But um, because of all the different types of boomerangs and sizes and, and lengths and all of that kind of thing, but from what I understand, the it's the actual um, face of the boomerang, which um, the wood's been carved, which helps. You know, which is, I guess, is the scientific aspect of it, which helps the returning boomerangs come back. So it's not just about the um, the shape of it; it's also that kind of the carp, what's carved on the face of it as well. Yeah, but I may have to send a link to kind of explain because I'm not too sure the all the aspects of that of the boomerang and how how to make it. But that's something which we're going to explore with some elders um, who are still doing some wood carving. Yeah, I mean that's fascinating. Um, it's one of those things over here where it's, I don't know, you, you almost one don't know whether or not that really exists because it seems so amazing. Mm. Although, like I said, it, the representation of it is is a little, um, uh, I don't know what the word would be exactly. It's not coming to mind, but um, not the most respectful, I guess. Um, yeah. So I, the other part that I wanted to ask you about, which, I mean, I guess ties exactly into that too, is you know, what What you would want the world to know about Indigenous Australians. You talked a lot just now about some of the, the way that Australian archaeology is changing, you know, with the cemetery idea and, you know, the idea that people weren't just nomadic and, and all of these different aspects that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. So if there was something that, that you would like to set the record straight on, what would that be? 
Oh, I think some of the the dating techniques in Australian archaeology have been enabled us to to put the date back to seventy thousand years, and that's some of our colleagues, Professor Chris Clarkson and his team, um, and his research, you know, kind of helped, you know, put that date back even further to seventy five thousand or or something like that. And I mean, that's pretty pretty amazing um, in terms of you know this dating techniques and the scientific techniques that go with it and the instruments who, that you use for them. But I guess there's limitations with those and that's part of what we understand when we're doing our work in Australia is that um, the, the instruments that we use for dating only take us back a certain time. So the radiocarbon dating only goes back, you know, to 100,000 years or so um, and then you have to start using other techniques. So what we do understand, which isn't, really on the record as such because it's you know, it's not something that you can really publish without having it tested properly but we know that there's science here and um, we know that they're older than that and we know that um, you know when Aboriginal people talk about and our elders talk about we've been here for a long time or we've been here for you know since the beginning of time it, they're not just um, tips which yeah that we just dismiss, um, and Australian archaeologists are really respectful with that in terms of understanding that there was actually quite a long, deep um, time here that people are conveying. And, yeah, so the, the work with the submerged landscapes, for example, is because of the sea level changes over time have risen. And so a lot of sites, if they're going to be older, are actually going to be under the water. And so the maritime archaeologists are doing some amazing work, and I just want them acknowledged mm -hmm. because... It's quite a different landscape under the water. I haven't got my diving license and I haven't done any of that work and I haven't been on ships um, to do any of that kind of work. And it's amazing kind of work that they do. Um, it's quite rough terrain. It's, you know, different. I mean, we're using the same methods and techniques, but they have to, um, you know, they're very skilled in, in recording those sites underwater. And so some of this research is starting to come out now um, with their work in the last five years where they've found the first site underwater up in WA where they found the first artefact up there and I'm looking forward to, to reading their work um, for that to be shared because, um, yeah, we, we know we knew that they were there and we know that there's older sites around. But, um, yeah, I guess that's the kind of space that people are going into. They're moving into, you know, their submerged landscapes underwater. There's a lot of rock art sites which have been destroyed because of mining here in Australia, and particularly up in the Burrup Pilbara region of Western Australia. And, um, I haven't been up there myself, but from my colleagues, you know, they've, they've been working up there for years recording the sites that they can before they get destroyed. You know, there's lots of fascinating work up in the Northern Territory um, in Queensland and the Torres Strait Islands. Um, we have amazing shell mounds. We've got, you know, the in the East Coast and, um, you know, we've got mountains up there. And that's the start of our kind of river system because of the, the mountains and the, the snow. And then when they melt, you know, it starts our, our river system. So, yeah, and then we've got some islands around too, you know, around the, um, the coast as well, which are quite significant. So, you know, in, the, in that desert area, you know, we've got quite a lot of desert um, in central Australia. Um, some of the arid region, uh, region you know, is, in, you know, it's ininhabitable. Like it's um, places where a lot of our early explorers actually died 
trying to cross these places. And, yeah, it's just amazing the kind of knowledge that some some of those Aboriginal communities who still live there have, like in terms of being able to have waterholes and know where to go and um, the knowledge that goes with plant biology and medicines and, and that that's still culture and history which or culture that exists still. And, you know, the Alice Springs and that central desert area, you know, still have traditional practices and people still go up there from the cities to to um to engage in ceremony or sorry business. Yeah, we've got a lot of history here and you know and a lot to look forward to um, as well, like in terms of a shared history and a new generation of people coming through. Um, and um, hopefully a new generation of politicians. <laughs> and yeah, I'm looking forward to kind of the the kind of work that people are starting to bring out and the new generation, young people who've got all these different skills. Um, across all different regions who are Aboriginal. Um, I'm sure it's like that in North America too where, yeah, they're just very, very savvy um, with technology and have very good ideas and, um, yeah, just looking forward to future generations too. All right. Okay, we are already at our second break point. <laughs> um, but I want to touch on a lot of that right when we get back. So we'll be right back. Hello, it's Jim Eagle. Please join us for the Bay Area American Indian Two-Spirit Society's 11th Annual Two-Spirit Powell in person or online this year at San Francisco Fort Mason Center on Saturday, February 12th, 2022. Gore dance at noon and grand entry begins at 1 p.m. There will be over 60 vendors selling all types of indigenous products and crafts. Powell dancers from all over the U.S. will be competing in contests all day long. We'll also be having several delicious fried bread taco vendors. For more information, go to Bates.org. That's B-A-A-I-T-S.org. COVID protocols will be in effect. See you there. All right, and we are back. First of all, I mean, so we were talking before about your PhD, and and I want to move on from your more recent work that you were starting to talk about. But I feel like I had heard even before um, you were recommended to me for the podcast in 2017, I feel like I, I saw something about how you were the first Indigenous Australian to be awarded a PhD in archaeology. And I was like really surprised by that at the time because, I mean, we don't have a ton of, of um, PhD archaeologists that are indigenous here in the U.S., but we have some. And I was, yeah. I was pretty surprised. I guess yeah. you always think like Australia and Canada are, are um, better with indigenous issues than the U.S. So, so that one, that really surprised me, but, but yeah. uh, that's, that's pretty impressive. Yeah. I guess um. There's probably a couple of reasons for it, and I was surprised too, actually, to tell you the truth. So I didn't even know that until probably I started around the middle of my PhD. People started to ask whether there were any other Indigenous archaeologists in Australia that had PhDs, and I don't think so because you know a lot of the colleagues and connections I've made have been from the US or New Zealand, and there's certainly people there. I guess there's probably a couple of reasons. One is in Australia the way that archaeology is practiced is a little bit different or to the US um, and to, to some of you know, um, our kind of neighbours and um, our colleagues. So it did start as anthropology here in the 50s and 60s and, and around the 60s that changed. Um, the Australian National University in Canberra was what, the first place that had archaeology um, as a discipline. And so they started to teach archaeology as a discipline and not have it, they didn't have anthropology as such within it. And um, that could be one of the reasons why we don't have many. Um, 
So we did have some in anthropology, um, but not in archaeology. And it's uh, there weren't a lot of universities who were teaching it as well. And I guess in the 60s and 70s here, um, our, that's only, I guess, the beginning of um, the time when Aboriginal people actually started to have rights recognised um, and people were allowed to start to engage in marriage, um, in the education system and to do other things like vote. I mean, different on different states. So some states, Aboriginal people could vote right from back when it was a colony, but in terms of like the federal politics and the federal landscape, the 60s are the kind of time when um, we had a referendum. So the 1967 referendum. That's nuts. To Sorry? Um, oh, I was just saying that's nuts. I had no idea it was that late. That's crazy. Yeah, and so, I mean, and that was the kind of year of, you know, one of the years of um, others kind of global, cultural, social, political movements happening, you know, with rock and, yeah, different, you know, different movements. So the Pan- Black Panther movement, I think, was one thing or was one movement yeah. um, Aboriginal people mm-hmm. really picked up on. Um, in the US, but yeah, they even started their own kind of freedom rides here. Um, and Charlie Perkins, you know, was the guy, was the Aboriginal leader, I guess, who, who started um, our freedom rides over here. Yeah, and started, started to be more more vocal and activists and, um, you know, started to fight more for Aboriginal rights. So yeah, it wasn't until the 60s that, yeah, I guess people were starting to, Aboriginal people were starting to engage in education. Um, so at our university, the first graduate was in the 1970s. So, and a lot of those people went into uh, the areas like education and health, um, obviously because those were areas that um, our community needed more people to be trained in. And nursing, uh, midwifery, um, yeah, a lot of teachers um, at that time. Um, so in terms of science, areas in science, that has only been a more recent, um, I guess, choice for, for Aboriginal people. Um, you know, as I said earlier in the podcast, um, I was the first in my family to go to university and do a bachelor's degree. I'm the, I think, only one of maybe two or three in my whole community um, who have a PhD. I'm only one of a, a handful from my high school um, to have a PhD as well. So you know, the area that I grew up in is uh, south of Adelaide. It's a low socio and economic region. Um, so, yeah, not a lot of people have access to to that kind of university education as well. Yeah. So that's big, some of the reasons why. But, um, yeah, it's certainly um, given, you know, I guess, yeah, I guess other people have been proud and I'm, I'm, I'm proud and still kind of you know, getting used to, to that. Certainly the university likes to, to use that as a platform. <laughs> To acknowledge <laughs> they've had their involvement in that. <laughs> but certainly Professor Claire Smith was my mentor at Flinders University. She was my one of my supervisors for my PhD. She was chair of the World Archaeological Congress. I think you may have interviewed her already. No, but she's yeah. the one who recommended you. Yeah, yeah. and um, yeah, so she's been a great mentor and um, you know, she's networked and connected me in, you know, internationally and um, she helped also with getting my first book contract um, with Rutledge um, and um, that's, you know, in the, I guess, the anthropology and archaeology section. And what's the what's the title? The title, the title is Yarangiri Rua um, and the Archaeology of Lyle Murray. So 
that's the tentative, yes, a preliminary trial at the moment. Um, it's a little bit long, but it's based on the PhD. Um, it focuses more on the archaeology of the Lower Murray and the ideas of, of, of country and Indigenous ways of doing things on country. So um, I guess the intersections between Yalanjiri and Indigenous knowledge systems and the archaeological record and archaeological knowledge and you know, my kind of my journey as well. So just bringing those two standpoints together. Part of a so when is that going to come out? Uh, it's August. August? Okay. I guess the other, the other type of work involved in has been with the National Indigenous Research and Knowledges Network. That was a quite a large um, research initiative funded by the Australian Research Council. Yeah, I think it was over a million dollars funded for that project. Um, I was one of the partners, but it was with a group of the 50 Indigenous researchers from around the country, um, led by wow. Aileen Morton Robinson, and uh-huh. started in 2014, and it's just about to finish, but it was a huge um, investment by the government to put funds and resources and training into training up more Indigenous researchers in, in Masters and PhD level. So I was involved in, in some of that network um, in terms of, you know, doing some of the workshops, bringing people together. I, also another um, research project being around repatriation of human remains. That's kind of the work I did before my PhD was working with my community and helping with negotiations and with the delegation bringing back old people's remains from overseas, from their museum collections, from their anatomy collections, um, and also helping once they're back home about you know, reburying them back on country and um, the process for that. So um, some of my work's been around the repatriation space. And I continue to have involvement um, in that um, space. So I was recently talking with John Cardi from the South Australian Museum, and he heads up the, I guess, Humanities part of the South Australian Museum, um, and he's really keen to get. Well, he already has more Aboriginal people getting involved in the training aspect in the museum. He's looking; they're doing repatriation programs in there that he wants to open up. You know, I guess the space for researchers to come in for education and research training, and also you know redevelop the Aboriginal Cultures Gallery because, as I said, the, you know, the South Australian Museum has one of the largest, I think, the largest collection of. Um, Aboriginal artefacts in the world, um, and a lot of a lot of those artefacts were collected by Norman Tindale, um, but over time, um, yeah. So there's you know there's some discussion there about continuing working repatriation, but for the state also. I'm so confused. Um, you mentioned um, that there was human remains in museum collections and anatomy connect collections. I I don't have yes. ever heard about this. Yep, so overseas, yeah, can you explain what? yeah, overseas and even here domestically, the anatomy museums, I guess the anatomy departments of universities where they did their medical training used Aboriginal people's bodies because it was um, legislated under the, under the states, like in South Australia, when Aboriginal people died, this is before the 1967 referendum, the Aboriginal people's bodies would become um, owned by the state. And, and what happened here was that a lot of the um, people were, you know, used for, for medical research, uh, for medical training. Um, they were also sent overseas for the same purpose. 
um, mainly to the UK, but in other European and, um, institutions. Um, and a lot of those institutions were medical establishments, so, so they had anatomy museums attached to them, um, or they became anatomy museums. So, um, yeah, a lot of Aboriginal people's remains ended up in, yeah, not just the main museums, but in university departments, in university collections, in archaeological collections, different types of um, collecting institutions, um, and also in private collections too. So there were a lot of cases where um, researchers and yeah, medical practitioners actually, you know, kept their own collections of um, human skulls mainly, uh, Aboriginal skulls. But certainly, you know, there's been, you know, with, our, with our group, we had over 400 human remains returned from overseas by the University of Edinburgh. And as part of that collection, it wasn't just skeletal remains, it was actually organs um, and body parts as well. So, Whoa. Yeah, so, you know, in terms of body parts still preserved in, in you know, formaldehyde and jars. And I didn't actually look at inside any of the boxes when we would um, do reburial ceremonies, but um, some of the anthropologists that we had were kind of relaying you know, some of the, their own, I guess, disgust. I don't know if it's disgust. Um, yeah, they, they kind of, yeah, to their own surprise, you know, what types of, parts of the body and just the descriptions of it was kind of put me off a little bit in terms of wanting to pursue that any further with research. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I, I, I kind of stopped doing it for a while and that's when I, you know, spoke with elders and um, ended up doing you know, my PhD focused on something which was more, you know, a range of different skill sets, you know, more focused on chill, on river, on different, yeah, but yeah, certainly it's, you know, we've still got quite a lot of old people sitting down at Camp Kurong um, in the keeping place because um, there's been a, the government's withdrew funding um, and there's no, there's no, it's not really funded for the communities to do any work for reburial. And yeah, it takes a lot of, a lot of organisation um, for that. So um, yeah, so that's the repatriation part. Um, yeah, I guess I'll... Yeah colleagues as well around the idea of healing through archaeology and healing through heritage um, and mm -hmm. um, these different aspects of, um, I guess, you know, people who've returned from war, um, people with disabilities, um, people with other types of, um, yeah, yeah, the ways in which heritage and archaeology and reconnection can actually help with people's healing is something which um, colleagues are starting to to collaborate with in humanities, archaeology, but also with our colleagues in um, like psychiatry and psychology and in the health area as well. Currently, well, there's a there's a conference coming up um, this year in October called it's the ICOMOS, which is the International Community on Monuments um, of Science. I think that's the, the name ICOMOS. Um, so the big GA General um, Assembly coming up in Australia this year. And um, I'm co-chairing the Indigenous Heritage theme for that with a colleague, Dr. Diane Menzies, who's from New Zealand. She's actually a, is she an architect? Yeah, she's an Indigenous architect, uh, but looks at landscape. Um, and so she's interested in heritage, but through yeah. architecture and landscape, the way in which people use the landscape for, for building um, 
per, um, settlements and so forth. And um, so that's going to be quite a large conference, quite a, a lot of um, work involved in that. And um, they'll be bringing together a whole, you know, we've got a team from across the, you know, to, from India, from Sweden, from, you know, all these different Indigenous people from around the world who we've got as part of our working team, yeah, as, as part of our theme. So, so going into the heritage space, working with museums as well. So as I mentioned, working with the South Australian Maritime Museum around the maritime or mining stuff. South Australian Museum around helping with the repatriation, uh, but also the National Museum of Australia in Canberra. Um, they have an exhibition coming up this year and I've been working with them for a couple of years around displaying part of my work and the story of Pondy into their exhibition. Um, so that's opening, I think, in the middle of the year, but I'll be sending one of the fish ear bones odalisks, one that was 2.2 metres, um, over to Canberra, just waiting for the community to approve it. Um, and yeah, they're you know, going to exhibit some of that as part of um, the new exhibitions that are coming up. So yeah, and yeah, there's quite a lot of work to continue on down. Yeah. Uh, so are you? You're not working with um, Jenny Newell, are you? At the National um, Museum. George May. The... No. Okay. Yeah. No. Just kidding. <laughs> oh, okay. So she was on the, Jenny Newell was on one of the earliest episodes of the podcast. Um, but she, I thought maybe she works at the, she works at the Australian Museum, I want to say, Australian National Museum. Something oh, like Australia, yeah, there's Australian Museum as well in Sydney. Okay. The yeah, National that Museum. that's the one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. So we're, we're getting real close to the end. So I'm trying to think, I'm trying to look and see if there's, you know, like a final question that I should ask you, but I, I guess, is there anything else that you would like to add or talk about? No, this, I mean, I've covered a fair bit there. <laughs> um, I guess I didn't really, you know, my, in terms of my career, wasn't expecting to end up or to be in a university um, or to be a lecturer. That wasn't my um, goal and it wasn't my plan at all. Um, so when I started my degree, I you know, my kind of goal and, um, you know, was to travel, um, which I've done <laughs> through my work, um, you know, but I thought I'd be on excavations continuously, um, you know, digging and, um, you know, just being directed by others. And so I guess towards the end of my degree, when I started to work around repatriation, um, you know, do honours, which I guess is equivalent to like masters, but um, I had some colleagues, Indigenous colleagues at the university who asked if I wanted to to work um, in our Aboriginal unit, which was called Yungarendi at the time. Um, and it was the First Nations Centre for Higher Education Research. And, um, you know, to work with young people, because I was only 21 at the time, and um, go into the schools and recruit uh, more Aboriginal people into the university. And I, you know, really valued my experience, you know, as an an academic advisor, they called us, uh, but we were academics, um, but also recruitment officers. So we we're still doing research and teaching and teaching Aboriginal studies. So I'm currently teaching in archaeology and Aboriginal studies, Indigenous studies at Flinders. Um, you know, I've, I give guest, guest lectures at other universities here in the state and also interstate, um, you know, in, across the different degree program, so not just in humanities, but, you know, some sometimes in science or health. And, um, 
Yeah, I guess, you know, I've only just, re- you know, been in the university sector for now 15 years um, and starting to see people graduate um, with their PhDs and, I've, you know, seen some of the students who came in, um, you know, way back 10 years ago who've now finished their, their medical degrees and are now training doctors. Um, recently had dinner with one of them and, you know, she thanked me for um, coming out to her school and um, talking because that kind of, I guess, set her wheels in motion. Um, and I've gotten a lot of reward out of that, like, and, um, you know, I'm grateful to have had these experiences in universities and help, you know, other young Aboriginal people come in and and do well with their life. And, yeah, it's really inspiring to see. So, yeah, I'm kind of didn't expect to be end up as a, um, an academic, but, um, yeah, I like what I do and um, I'm just going to continue to continue you know, working with the university and working with my community and, um, yeah, and just sharing the knowledge and, and the education of what I do. Yeah. yeah. Well, we can't wait to hear more about, about what you get to in the future and mm. more about your work and everything. Yeah. We'll have to talk more sometime. No worries. Yeah. All right. Well, I mean, as always, there's a million other things I could have asked you about. Sure. Yeah. But, um, but thank you so much for, for okay. on and talking to us today. All right. Well, Thanks, and um, talk to you later. Thanks for listening to the Heritage Voices podcast. You can find show notes at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash heritage voices. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Music Store. Also, if you like the show, please share with your friends or write us a review. If you have any questions, comments, or show suggestions, please reach out to me at jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org, or you can find me on Facebook through Living Heritage Anthropology or on Twitter at Living Heritage A. As always, thank you to Lyle Blanqua and Jason Nez for their collaboration on our incredible logo. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.